Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, as we continue to ponder this amazing gospel that so transformed our lives. We're going to begin in verse 13. And as we get to this passage, we are at the center point of the Gospel of Matthew. It's the center of the book. The Gospel began with Jesus' lineage. We learn that he's a descendant of the patriarch Abraham and the great King David. We learn that he comes from Israel, the people of God, a people God gave to the world to reveal himself and to save the world from his judgment into a new life. Matthew's gospel then ends, so it begins with this lineage and all the hope that's packed into the history of these people, and then it ends with Jesus resurrected and sending his disciples out into the world to form a new people of God. So the gospel hinges, as this passage is a hinge in the entire storyline of this gospel, the gospel hinges on the identity of Jesus and the identity of the people of God. Jesus' identity, if you're familiar with the Bible, it's embedded in the Old Testament revelation. When Israel of the first century saw Jesus, most could not conceive of him as their Messiah that they saw promised in the Old Testament, but he didn't look anything like what they expected. So our text today forms a hinge between Jesus' ministry in which his identity is largely hidden to his journey to Jerusalem where he's crucified as a false Christ only to rise to demonstrate the claims of our text today. Now, I've been pondering this text. I asked for, the, I asked for permission to preach this text because I've been pondering it deeply for the last 10 years. And that's, that's not hype, and it is intended to get your attention, but it's not hype. Um, I think it's really crucial for us as the people of God to understand what's going on in here because as Americans, we tend not to get it. So let's read together and let's stretch our hearts to see Jesus. Matthew sixteen, thirteen. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hell shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Lord, these words were spoken 2,000 years ago, and they're as alive today as they were then, spoken by Jesus outside of Caesarea Philippi. And we pray that by your Spirit, we would see Jesus in this text, and in encountering him, we would follow him with everything we have. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. When Peter looked at Jesus, what did Peter see? When you look at Jesus, what do you see? Ask the question a different way. What does it mean to encounter Jesus? Have you encountered Jesus? Some people look at Jesus and they see a life coach. You know, you hire a life coach, helps you to live a good and prosperous life. Some see Jesus and they see a political savior who aims to drive out the oppressors and usher in a better government that champions the poor. So the big question of our text is, who did Peter see? And then, what did his sight of Jesus mean for his life? And where the text should take you is when you look at Jesus, who do you see? And what does your sight mean for your life? These are radical questions, and the gospel provides radical answers. I use that word radical because they get to the root. That's what radical means. It gets to the root of God's revelation to us and God's will for our entire lives. Our lives hinge on seeing Jesus and responding to him as he expects us to respond. So I've already outlined the sermon. It comes in three easy parts. Number one, who did Peter see? Number two, what did that mean for Peter? And number three, what does it mean for you and for me? So number one, who did Peter see? We find this in verses 13 to 17. As we've heard in the last two weeks, at the end of chapter 15, the beginning of chapter 16, Jesus and his disciples are in the region of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus there miraculously multiplies seven loaves of bread and a few fish to feed more than 4,000 people. It's in this context that Pharisees and Sadducees arrive and they meet him. They've come from Jerusalem to test him. They're there to prove that he's a fraud. Then Jesus and the disciples travel north into a largely Gentile area where they can be alone. And it's here that Jesus introduces the question of his identity 
Since the disciples have mingled among the crowds that have come to Jesus, they have been well positioned to hear what people think about their master. So Jesus asked them, who do people say that the son of man is? Son of man is the title that Jesus has used in his preaching and teaching to identify himself. He calls himself the son of man. The word, the phrase could simply mean a human being. Or it could hint at the same title that God gave to the prophet Ezekiel. The disciples answered Jesus' question with a list of prophets, including John the Baptist. Now, as you know, Israel has a very long and storied history of prophets. The prophets announced God's will for his people, calling them to repent of their sins and return to them, warning them of coming judgment if they do not turn and giving hope to those who remain faithful in the face of hardship. And Jesus spoke the word of God like the prophet Jeremiah. And he did miracles similar to and greater than the prophet Elijah. He certainly fit the mold of a prophet, and that is what the people who flocked to Jesus saw. But then Jesus makes it personal for the disciples. Who do you say that I am? Only Peter answers, most likely because he's speaking for all of them. The text does not say. But he says this, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And this, this simple statement results in this astounding response from Jesus. Now, the second half of Peter's confession, you are the son of the living God, is not new. Back in chapter 14, verse 33, after Jesus had walked on water and encountered the disciples in the middle of a storm-tossed sea of Galilee, they fell down in the boat and worshipped him, and they said to him, Truly, you are the Son of God. But Peter calls him the Christ. And that's new. That's new in the gospel. Matthew, the gospel writer, has referred to Jesus as Christ in the process of the narrative. But Matthew wrote after the resurrection, in the actual events of the gospel leading up to Jesus' question, here in chapter 16, none of the characters in the story have called him this title. The Christ. It's a Greek word that translates the Hebrew word that you know, Messiah. Messiah. It refers to God's appointed king. The Jewish expectation of a Messiah filled the first century Judean air. People longed for a man who would come from the great line of David, a king who would come to liberate them from the bone-crushing rule of the Romans and the soul-crushing spiritual leadership of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and priesthood. Peter recognizes Jesus as this man, the Messiah, his Messiah King. Jesus tells Peter that his confession is a gift from God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. 
To see Jesus as the Christ, as God's chosen and anointed king, is a blessing that can only come from God. You can't get this on your own. When you look at Jesus, do you see a king? Let's stop for a moment. We've got to think about this. We are, at least the vast majority of us, as far as I know, we are Americans. Our nation was founded on the rejection of a king and any form of monarchy. Our constitution begins by announcing that we are now, by ruled, we are now ruled by laws that are formed by the people, by us, not by a king. So we have an ingrained aversion to any person who might claim a hereditary right to make laws for us and rule over us. But that's exactly what kings do. Unless they're the window dressing of an old European nation like the United Kingdom, then they exist for show and they carry no authority. But that's not the case in the first century, and that's not the reality of a king, whatever name he comes by, whatever title is ascribed to him. This king, the Christ, the Son of God, who according to Psalm 2 rules the nations with a rod of iron in his rule, I'm sorry, rules the nations with a rod of iron, causing the kings of the earth to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in his rule and to come trembling before him to kiss him in homage. This is the king that we meet in Jesus Christ. So Peter is recognizing that Jesus is more than a prophet who speaks for God. He is God's chosen and anointed king appointed to rule over every nation and therefore over every human being on earth. That's what Peter saw when he looked at Jesus. So number two, what's that mean for Peter? Verses 18 through 20, Jesus tells Peter that his confession has two results. First, Jesus will build his church on Peter. And second, Jesus will give Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Let's read it again since it's been a few minutes. Verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You are Peter. Now, Jesus points out that his given name was Simon. He is Simon, son of Jonah. But somewhere along life's road, he picked up the name Peter. Now, people who scour the literature of the first century, before, the century before Christ, uh, that name Peter doesn't appear in any literature we have prior to this man. So it wasn't a name that parents gave their children. This guy got the name Simon from his parents. 
Somehow he picks up this name, Peter. And so Jesus uses the name to make a pun. Peter is the word in their language for rock. Jesus says that on the rock of Peter, he will build his church. Now, some of you may be aware, if you have any prior knowledge of this verse and the wider church in the world, you might know this is a very controversial verse. Over time, Roman Catholics saw Peter as the first pope. They claim to this day that Jesus said he would build his church on the papacy of Peter and all those who became popes after him. Now, there is nothing in the language of this verse, and you can look far and long, it's not there, that points to apostolic succession or an office. So Catholics have to look elsewhere to make this verse say that. It's not in the text. Martin Luther, who had some, oh, rather negative experience with the Pope, he said the verse does not refer to Peter, but to Christ. Peter confesses the Christ upon whom the church is built, which is true, but that's not what the language of the verse says. Jesus says he'll build his church on Peter. And all the pronouns that follow, I will give you, singular, whatever you bind, singular, whatever you loose, singular, they all refer back to Jesus saying, you're Peter. And on this rock, I'll build the church. John Calvin, who had his own run-ins with the papacy, said that the rock is Peter's faith, which is also true. The church is populated by people who put their faith in Jesus, but that's not what the text says. I think, and scholars like D.A. Carson and R.T. France would agree, that Jesus is saying he will build his church on Peter, who recognizes Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter lays the initial groundwork for the church in preaching to those. Remember, when, when the Holy Spirit is given, Jesus is ascended into heaven. Uh, the Holy Spirit falls upon the apostles. They speak in other tongues. Peter comes, who comes out and preaches the initial sermon that results in thousands coming to Christ? It's Peter. The Christian movement initially is largely a, entirely a Jewish movement. Who opens the door to Gentiles becoming Christians without having to become Jews? It's Peter. So Peter is definitely first. He's first in his confession, and he's first in his leadership in the establishment of the church. But it's not only Peter. Though Peter is first and becomes a leading pioneer in establishing Jesus' church, it's got to be more than that. Now, we've got to keep fixed in our minds that Peter is blessed and honored by Jesus because he recognizes who Jesus is, God's anointed king. Jesus will build his church on people like this, starting with Peter. 
people who see Jesus as the divine king. So keep in mind, Jesus is the builder. His church belongs to him. Peter plays a role in submission to his king. But Peter's not the main event. Just like we're not the main event. This is Jesus' work. Now, Jesus says, I will build my church. And when we hear that word, we might think of a building or a denomination or even a form of worship. But that's not what a first century Jew would hear when he heard the word church. He would hear what we would translate as assembly. I will build my assembly. That word could mean any group of people gathered in one place for a purpose. To a Jew, it would have special meaning of the assembly of God's people, both in history as they gathered at Mount Sinai to receive the law, and also in their feasts as yearly they gathered in Jerusalem to make sacrifice and worship the Lord. It was the assembly of God's people. They came before God to worship God and to receive from God. Under King Jesus, the people of God will be vastly expanded to include Gentiles. He will gather people from the four corners of the earth and he'll make them his people. They will be his assembly. And he's going to do it through Peter. And he's going to do it through the rest of his people. Now I'm going to get to why I say it includes more than just Peter in just a moment. But let's ask the question, what's with the keys? Look at verse 19. I will give you, Peter, singular, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Keys, you know this, keys open doors and they lock doors. In the language here, these keys open a door by loosing people into the kingdom of heaven and they lock a door by binding them from entering. They are the king's keys entrusted to his church to bind what is already bound in heaven and loose what is already loosed in heaven. That's what the, the, literally the verb says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. So what heaven has already accomplished, we are invited to take these keys and either unlock the door and say, welcome into God's church, into God's kingdom, or to say, no, you may not come. Peter has declared Jesus' true identity. This message will open hearts to the gospel. This is a gift of revelation given by Jesus' Father in heaven. So Peter has already experienced the keys of the kingdom of heaven unlocking his heart so he can make the confession that he did. And now he is invited to participate with God just as Jesus did in unlocking his heart to unlocking the hearts of others. He will do this through proclaiming the kingdom of God, proclaiming the gospel of Christ, which will unlock hearts to faith. 
He will proclaim the gospel and will open the door for some, but close it for others. But not just Peter. So you said, John, it's, this text is just about Peter. Well, where do you get the rest of us? There are two verses in the New Testament that use the word church. I'm sorry, two verses in the four Gospels. I misspoke. Two verses in the four Gospels that use the word church. And there are only two passages in the entire Bible that speak of binding and loosing. The first we read today. The second is two chapters later in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew 18, 15 to 18, the responsibility to bind and loose is given to the entire church. If a brother sins and refuses to repent, you are to tell it to the church. And if the entire assembly of God's people cannot persuade him to repent, you are to deny him fellowship. So Jesus uses the exact same words of binding and loosing in Matthew sixteen nineteen. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Those exact same words are used in Matthew 18 and applied to the entire church. So Peter is first, but he's the first among equals. He's the pioneer who leads the way and demonstrates how this is to work in preaching and discipline. But he is also the first of many, including us here today. The entire church is to participate in binding and loosing by preaching the gospel of Jesus as the king which opens the hearts of some while others close their hearts and are bound from entry. And for those who join the church but whose lives deny Jesus' authority, Jesus tells us in chapter 18 that they should be bound or locked out of fellowship. Jesus promises that his church, his church will stand. Nothing can extinguish the people of God. Now, verse 18 in the English Standard Version, which most of us read from, I read from today, gives us a potentially misleading translation. It reads, the gates of hell will not stand against the church. The translation hell is misleading. Literally, the word is, same in English as Greek, it's Hades. The gates of Hades will not stand against the church. Now, when a first century Jew heard the phrase, the gates of Hades, uh, we have our own euphemisms for death, but this was theirs. Somebody might say he bought the farm as a reference to death. They said he's entered the gates of Hades, the gates of Death, once you pass through these gates, there was no return. Hell, in our minds, is the place where Satan dwells. That's not what's in view here. Here's Jesus' point. Death cannot prevail over his church. Death will not prevail because of the resurrection. 
Death will not prevail because Jesus will preserve a testimony among his people, his church on this earth throughout the ages. You know, we've been hearing a lot of talk lately, and there are certain people I read in our broader news media who take great delight. They say, oh, church attendance in America is dwindling. People are not joining the church. The church is going to be a bunch of old baby boomers who eventually die off, and there'll be no more church. There's an expectation the church is going to die. This church is not going to die because it's Jesus' church. And even death can't extinguish it. No tyrant, no Julian the apostate, no Stalin or Hitler or Mao or Islamic State can kill the church. Jesus will preserve a testimony of his righteous and gracious kingship throughout the earth for all time until he wraps it all up. Nothing can stop this no matter what. And that's the confidence that we get in Peter receiving this commission. So number three, what does this mean for you and me? This is a critical text. And it's especially critical here in America. I already mentioned that. We don't like the idea of submitting to a king in America. We're supposed to be better than that. Not only that, over the past century, the evangelical pastors and leaders in America have tended to present the gospel in consumer terms. Come to Jesus and your marriage will improve. You'll find friends. You'll overcome your depression. Your kids will find peers who are safe to be with. And not only that, but you'll go to heaven when you die. Now, all those things I mentioned in that list may be true, but Jesus doesn't call us to join a church based on personal preferences. This is not a lifestyle choice. Kings don't reign on the choice of their subjects. We are not invited by Jesus to compare him to other rulers and pick the one we like best. That's not how he functions. He's the son of the living God, the king of the universe. He gets to choose. He makes the rules. He builds his church. We don't come to him to negotiate. We come to submit. Now, I don't want to press that too far without saying he chooses us in love. He chooses us with the promise of eternal life. He chooses us and adopts us as a child. But the path to eternal life, as Peter and the apostles will shortly learn, in fact, in the next section of this gospel, The path to eternal life involves persecution, suffering, and death. Can't lose sight of that. But we are immersed in this consumerist culture. 
Just about everything we touch comes to us via advertisements that promise a fulfilled desire. A better life that we can choose. We can choose anything we want for our life, right down to whether we want to be a male or a female. That's a denial of our Creator King. To come to Jesus is to come to a King. To come to the King. To follow Him as a disciple is to submit to Him in every aspect of our lives. Not like Pharisees trying to reduce it down to a list of do's and don'ts so we can stay within that parameter and then do whatever else we want. No, He gets it all. He gets to choose it all. And that king appoints you to a church. See, the gospel not only opens the door to eternal life, that same door opens on to a room filled with people. (laughs) Like this room right now. In our text today, Jesus has in mind a church universal all those who at all times and in all places have put their faith in him. Okay, so what he has, he's going he's to build a church that death is never going to, generation to generation, death, church never going to die out. That's the point he's making. But when you get to chapter 18, by necessity, if you are to evaluate whether someone is living a life in keeping with his confession, it's got to happen in a local church. The church must be able to determine whether or not someone has genuinely put their faith in God's King, Jesus, so that he can be baptized and become a member of the church. And we can't do that for people in Detroit or Dubai, but we can do it for the assembly that gathers as Grace Church. So do you see... Though this kingdom is universal and this king is the king of the ages of all times, all places, all people. The way he functions in his kingdom is through a local church. Jesus presents his church to us in this text and in chapter 18 as a given for anyone who puts his faith in Jesus. It's not an option. In the American consumer's culture, church membership has become an option. I hear of and encounter more and more people who will give me a wonderful gospel testimony of their life with God. But, you know, they're not really into church. My son-in-law, who lives in Southern California, told me the story of a number of people that he's known over the years who on Sunday mornings... uh, begin checking the websites of various churches in the area to choose which church they will go to on that day. And, you know, hey, there's a lunch for singles on this, at this one. Let's go. Free food. It's nuts. And it's very American. The church must have an identifiable membership for if it does not, how do we obey our king and use the keys, the keys of heaven, the keys of the kingdom of heaven? They belong to him. How are we supposed to use them to know whom to bind and whom to loose? 
It's, it's, really, it's really all right there. It's hard to see a king like this who would distribute keys like this because we are Americans. If you are a Christian, but you have not submitted yourself to the fellowship of a particular church, you are living outside the authority of your king. Now, this is not an infomercial for Grace Church. This is, this is Jesus Christ speaking to his church which is formed in local churches as it has been since it began in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And so if you are living outside his authority, I would urge you to change your heart and find your way into a local church that takes our King Jesus at his word. This is going to be the challenge that we face going forward. We live in a nation that the liberalism that the nation was founded on, classical liberalism is what I'm talking about, not political liberalism. The idea of individual identity, individual choice is coming to its exhausted end. And we feel the effects of that. We all live in that. We think like that. We got to fight that. And the first place we got to start is we submit ourselves to our king by joining a local church that now has a lot of influence over us. Not to coerce us, not to control us, but to lead us to our king Jesus and to follow him. When you see Jesus for who he is, the king of creation, your king. It changes everything. It opens to you the door to the kingdom of heaven and it joins you to a particular people in a particular place so that together with other people who see Jesus, you can live as a royal city set on a hill shining with the brightness of our glorious king. That's what happens when you see Jesus the way Peter saw Jesus. And that's what we're invited into, this glorious kingdom with the best king we could ever imagine. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we are... We are fallen individuals and we bring to your word our own cultural prejudices, our own sinful preferences, and we acknowledge that. And we take up the confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so we choose to submit to you to follow you, to take our place in your church so that we can use these keys in a way that opens the door to many, many, many people to hear the gospel and follow you and closes the door to all those who would discredit you both by their confession and by their behavior. 
Give us the grace, Lord, to be, this, to be that church, one among many here at Grace Church. Give this gift to your church in America that we would get this. Have mercy on us, Lord. Build your church. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.